0: Hello and welcome to at last episode 98 of Sensational She Geek, live from Mianzi Street where we also have a our co-host this week again Adam. Hello Adam. Hi. Thank you for joining us my husband Adam uh, and this is going to be a pretty full episode. It's been a few weeks since we've had one so it's gonna be covering a lot of stuff from June in general, starting with, unfortunately, the uh, obituary for John Romita, Sr., who passed away on the 12th, I believe, about two weeks ago now, uh, absolutely iconic name in the industry, we'll talk, obviously, about why that is, and do a long list of the characters that he helped create. The tarot card of the week is Justice. We'll talk history, description, symbolism meaning and, of course, the pop culture fun stuff, um, If it'll help you stick around for that. The Marvel characters who correspond that we're going to be talking about are Magic and Valkyrie, so that'll be fun. Uh, we're not doing a Manga of the Week because uh, I figured it's Pride Month, so why not do a spotlight on queer manga, highlighting the diversity of characters, topics, and settings of LGBTQ-plus-based mangas. And there's actually a lot, but there's a lot of... Uh, I have a bunch of sources if you like really want to know where I got all this from, but there's a lot that uh, crossed over on multiple lists, so those are the ones that I picked out, plus a few that I like. Uh, not really any manga news, but there's a link for Otaku calendar there if you want it in the podcast notes. And then I am covering a lot of comics <laughs> that I've been catching up on from... Uh, the end of May and then through this month, June, uh, including Captain Marvel 50, Wonder Woman 800, the Tom King kickoff, Hickman's Ultimate Invasion, uh, the end of Purgatory Must Die, some really fun stuff like that. Um, all the way down to this week's, uh, Spirit World number two, Hellcat number four, um, and uh, Victory was another one that I actually was surprisingly liked a lot. Uh, and there's a whole bunch more that we'll talk about as well. The new next week is for the 28th. Uh, that'll be Wednesday for the regular comics. DC comes out Tuesday. And then f- a few points of comic book news, including what to expect in September, now that all those solicitations are out. Uh, just the going through the, uh, the notable number ones and one-shots from the big two Marvel and DC. Talking about the, like I said a few weeks ago, The wedding of Emma Frost and Tony Stark, as well as what we're really excited for Batman Gargoyle of Gotham by Raphael Grandpa. Um, Well, it's going to be a lot of, there's some TV (laughs) and movies and stuff that we will briefly mention um, before talking news and rumors. Yes, we'll talk a little bit about the Flash movie, because we kind of have to, I guess, at this point. Um, And then anime stuff, and yes, of course, Strange New Worlds now has two episodes out of season two. I made Adam watch the first season uh, over the past month or so, so he's caught up and we can talk about it. Uh, So episode one, The Broken Circle, and episode two, Ad Astra Per Aspera, and Secret Invasion, which premiered as well in the past week or so. The, yeah, we'll talk about that and how that went. i I might have fallen asleep, but we stayed up to watch it because I got off work late. It doesn't matter, but we'll talk about the the important parts of the episode, um because it was a long episode. Um, I don't think it really needed to be, but again, we'll we'll talk about that when we get there. If you're looking to find either of the hosts, either myself or Adam, on social media, the best way for either of us for that is Instagram, which will be linked in the description below. I'll also have um, uh, time signatures for the episodes that I usually put in there, as well as um, information at the bottom for you know various things um, that I've done for podcast specials in the past. Jessica Cruz is coming. I swear it'll happen. Um and so is the Marvel's podcast. <laughs> but uh but anyway, um if you want to see any of that and then the podcast notes are the last thing that you may be interested in if you just want to follow along with the text of the podcast. Um it's not obviously all in there cuz I'm not reading off anything right now, but uh, the general idea of the podcast and a lot of the, like, tarot and stuff is in there written down. So you can check that out. And links. is a lot of links to things um, that I get this information from. So, hey, you can check that out, too. Starting us off this week is the remembrance for the late great is such a cliche, but it is... Uh he was John Ramitas Senior. Uh he was born on I'll do a little I'll do a little Wikipedia for you here before uh, Adam says anything he has to say about it born on January 24, 1930, in Brooklyn, New York City, where he was also raised. He graduated from Manhattan School of Industrial Art in 1947, and he was working at the uh, New York City company Forbes Lithograph in 1949, earning $30 a week, when comic book inker Lester Zacharin, a friend from high school whom he, he ran into on a subway train, offered to pay him a pencil-to-pencil a 10-page story, For him as an uncredited ghost artist, thus began his first comics work for Timely Comics, the precursor to Marvel, through which Romita then met editor-in-chief Stan Lee. In 1951, Romita was drafted into the U.S. Army, after which he began drawing horror, war, and romance comics for Atlas Comics, which was previously Timely. And he also drew for his his first superhero work a 1950s revival of Captain America. He began working exclusively for DC Comics from 1958 to 1965 and was the often uncredited artist for many of their romance comics while continuing to freelance for Atlas at the same time. During these years as a romance artist, Romita further developed his ability to draw beautiful women, which he later became known for as well which you can see uh, Amazing Spider-Man Annual Number 16 is one that he did, I think, with his son, actually, which was the first appearance of Monica Rambeau. You can see a lot of their love of the female form in that issue, particularly. Romita joined Marvel properly at last in 1965, draw- starting with drawing Daredevil comics, in which he was initially penciling over Jack Kirby's dynamic layouts, as a means of learning Marvel's storytelling house style. In 1966, when Spider-Man artist and co-creator Steve Ditko left Marvel, Romita was chosen by writer Lee as the new artist for Amazing Spider-Man. Within a year of Romita becoming the Spider-Man artist, The Amazing Spider-Man rose from Marvel's second Best-selling title to the company's top seller, he brought he brought a new romance style to the Spider-Man comics that soon became the new house style for the character. In June 1973, Romita was promoted to Marvel's art director and heavily influenced the look of the company's uh, comics throughout the 1970s and 80s. He was then abduct, abducted, <laughs> in, inducted into the Will Eisner Comic Book Hall of Fame in 2002 and to give you an idea of how um, uh, important of a figure he was in comics throughout his time as a creator. Alphabetical list of characters he has a hand in creating. Brother Voodoo, Bullseye, Luke Cage, The Femizons, which is a team, uh, Firestar, Richard Fisk, Vanessa Fisk, Gibbon, Gladiator, aka Melvin Potter, Hammerhead, Jonas Harrow, the Hobgoblin, Kangaroo, Kingpin, Man Mountain Marco, which is a Spider-Man one, Mass Marauder, which I think is also a Spider-Man one, Jack Monroe, Nova, Richard Ryder, Punisher, Rattler, Rhino, Randy Robertson, Robbie Robertson, different people, Satana, who I love, Shocker, George Stacy, Tigra, Vulture, of course, Mary Jane Watson, Western Kid, and Wolverine the one and only kind of the, the one of a few. <laughs> Any thoughts on John Romita senior?
1: Um, Yeah, that was, that was a great summary you had for him. I think it really kind of hits on all the high notes cool. and kind of nails the, the, you know, importance of him in that era, especially for Spider-Man. Um, but just, just going through that list, like so many, like I, in my opinion, like big characters in the Spider-Man mythos, like Captain Stacy, like, shocker um like the fisk family it's so like it's so awesome and then also the page that everybody remembers of his mary jane is you just hit the jackpot tiger like Mm -hmm. if you guys if you guys can't think of his art just think of that page it's literally Mm -hmm. that is what 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 is he's known for um, and I love that we have that cover of, uh, that he did of their marriage. Um, mm-hmm, it's, it's such, yeah. it's so awesome. And, and I didn't know, I had no clue, like, you know, as, as I only know him from Spider-Man, you know, and of course his son doing Spider-Man as well. Um, but I had no clue about the romance angle. That's so mm-hmm. fun. And it makes sense why mm-hmm. whenever he was on Spider-Man, all of the women were so <laughs> attractive and so good looking and mm-hmm. like, yeah, it just, just really brought, it brought, I think, I feel like it really brought that nice touch the book was needing at that point in time and kind of. I think kind of carry carryovers today in the spirit of Spider-Man and the women that surround him and that are in that book. Mm-hmm, definitely. Um, uh, and I also, because, and I, and I like to think, you know, because of him, you end up getting a lot of people like uh, Sal Buscema. Uh, if you look mm-hmm. at Buscema's style, it's very reminiscent of, of Romita's. Um, but I do love the thing, yeah, just like you said, that uh, him and his son did uh, Monica's first appearance <laughs> together. That's really cool. Um, And it's really awesome. That's kind of why me and my dad were also fans of them. That whole idea of, you know, doing comics with your dad, I think is pretty awesome. Um, And then his wife, I I feel so bad, but his wife was also um, an editor, their editor there as well. So it's kind of funny. It was like a whole family affair for them at Marvel. Um, But yeah, he will be missed. And I'm glad that, you know, I saw that like everybody, uh, regardless of generation of artists, was talking about his art mm-hmm. and how influential it was. So it was cool to see mm-hmm. that people still recognized him and his work.
0: Yeah, everybody from the communities, various storytelling and um, creative arts communities, were all talking about it because it was it, he's, he was a big deal. He is a big deal. Always will be. Our tarot card of the week is card number eleven of the major arcana, Justice. To start off with history about the card, the virtue justice accompanies two of the other cardinal virtues in the major arcana, temperance and strength. Only prudence is missing. However, all four are found in the Michiante, a, fi, yeah, it would be Chiate, a 15th century Florentine deck to, similar to the tarot but with 97 cards. This has led to speculation whether the card is missing or signified by an existing Trump from the hanged man to the world. Almost all decks today follow a variation of the tarot de Marseille sequence, which sees justice as card number 11, the hermetic order of the golden dawn, the Victorian Magic society interested in Western esoteric traditions believe the tarot trumps signified the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet and corresponding elements, planets, and zodiac signs. Their model switched the positions of strength and justice associated with Leo and Libra, respectively. The strength card shows a woman with a lion, like Leo, the zodiac sign. It was changed from 11 to 8. The figure of justice bears the scales like Libra. It was changed from 8 to 11. The Golden Dawn believed this reversal corrected in Occult Blind, an intentional mistake used to conceal information from the uninitiated. Yeah, whatever. The earliest 20th century Rider Waite deck preserved this switch. Since most contemporary decks are based upon it, this modified sequence became the standard. Besides this change in order, the Justice card has remained very consistent over time. Both early 18th century Marseille deck and early 20th century Rider-Waite depict a seated crowned woman facing forward with a sword in her right hand and scales in her left. The Rider-Waite places her between two pillars, like the high priestess. Justice is not blind in the tarot. That motive became popular during the 16th century. This imagery is typical of medieval and Renaissance allegories of Justice. Her iconography ultimately derives from representations of the Roman goddess Eustia, Justice, um, uh, I guess, ancient Roman, herself modeled on the Greek goddess Themis, uh, goddess of custom, law, and right. For the description and symbolism of the Justice card, Literal description is the figure of justice, female usually sits in front of a loosely hung purple veil signifying compassion, and between two pillars, similar to those framing the high priestess and the hierophant, which symbolize balance, law, and structure. She holds a sword in her right hand, showing the logical, well-ordered mindset necessary to dispense fair justice. The sword points upwards, expressing a firm and final decision— and the double-edged blade signifies that our actions always carry consequences the scales in her left intuitive hand show intuition must balance that logic and are must balance that logic and are a symbol of her impartial impartiality justice wears a crown with a small square on it representing well-ordered thoughts and a red robe with a green mantle a little white shoe pops out from beneath her clothing as a reminder of the spiritual consequences of your actions. There's a little story. I don't know if this is like an all- like a well-known allegorical story or something, but it was posted by um this woman who was writing about the cards, so I imagine it's something either she made up or anyway, I thought it was cute. Uh it says the fool is looking for a new path, a new aspiration and inspiration for his life. Sitting uncertain at a crossroads, he notices a blind woman a blind wise woman listening to two brothers argue over an the inheritance. They have come to her for judgment. One brother has the whole inheritance, the other has nothing. I ask that all of what is All of it is to be given to me, the poor brother demands, not only because I have a better right to it, but because I will not be wasteful with it, as he is. But the rich brother protests. It is rightfully mine, and that's all that should matter, and not what I do with it. The woman listens, then awards half of the rich brother's inheritance to the poor brother. The fool thinks this only fair, but neither brother is happy. The rich one hates losing his wealth, and the poor one feels he ought to have gotten it all. "'You were fair,' the fool remarks to the woman after the brothers have left. "'Yes, I was,' she answered plainly. "'With only half the inheritance, the rich one will stop being so wasteful, and the poor one will have as much as he needs. Even though they cannot see it, the decision was good for both.' The fool thinks on this and realizes that he has spent his life achieving worldly ambitions and physical goods when leaving, while leaving his spiritual self to starve. He ought to have given half his time and energy to his spiritual self, but he didn't. It's no wonder that he feels unbalanced. Thanking the woman, he heads out to restore equilibrium and balance his inner scales. The ending's kind of weird, but you get the point, I think. It's kind of a cute story. The meaning and the various meanings and interpretations of the justice card, according to A.E. Waite in his 1910 book, card number 11, Justice, Equity, Rightness, Probity, Executive, Triumph of the Deserving Side in Law. Doesn't really make sense to me, but he was a weird dude. Reversed, law in all its departments, legal complications, bigotry, bias, excessive severity. There are two sides basically that I see you can take um, when interpreting the meaning of the card. The first one, uh, well, I guess is the "you are waiting judgment" one, which is a lot more literal. But uh, the first side is you are being called to account for your actions and will be judged accordingly. If you have acted in alignment with your higher self and for the greater good of others, you have not, you have nothing to worry about. However, if you haven't, you will be called out and made to own up to your actions. If this has you shaking in your boots, know that the Justice card isn't as black and white as you may think. A level of compassion and understanding accompany justice, and although you may have done something you regret, this card suggests that you will be treated fairly and without bias. Be ready to take responsibility for your actions and stand accountable for the ensuing consequences. The second side is the Justice card often appears when you need to make an important choice with the potential for long-term repercussions be aware that the impact be aware of the impact your decisions will have on your well-being and the well-being of others choose consciously by connecting with your inner guidance system your intuition and asking for the answers that is most in, answer that is most in alignment with your highest good for all be ready to stand by your decisions as you will be held to account for the choices you make you need to ask yourself: Do I stand by my decisions and accept the consequences of my actions? If you cannot, then dig deeper, plunging into the shadows of what is right and wrong, until you find the place where you can stand in integrity and in integrity and strength. And that leaves us with the fun stuff, the pop culture. Uh, back to Stardust Crusaders from JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Their stands are named after taros, and the Justice Stand belongs to Enya. Apparently a secondary antagonist. Anything you remember about Enya? I remember the name. Yeah. It's been a while. Uh, and then we have the Marvel Tarot and the Anime Tarot. The Marvel Tarot, uh, in this magical dude's journal, he pulls the cards as magic and Valkyrie for justice. So we'll read what it is that he says about it. Uh, for, let's see, I think this is one of yeah, for magic. This hero of justice is the X-Man Magic. She has been dead for over a decade now, but I am getting mysterious missives from Limbo saying that she may be be making a comeback, or is it return? I wouldn't be surprised to find out she is back. She always had a way of turning up when and where she was least expected. I am nearly convinced that she's shown up in my research on ancient Egypt. As a demon sorceress, Ileana Rasputin might seem to be surprisingly shadowy subject for the justice card, but there is no denying of the power and purity of her soul sword. And I feel like that's a lot more relevant even now, um, with, uh, I guess, like the Hickman era having added her to the the leaders of the warlords or whatever on Krakoa. So he says, one of two times magic. And then, the fact that there are two subjects making alternating appearances on the justice card is absolutely a sign that the deck is damaged. Is it also a bad sign that both of these subjects are supposed to be dead? In the case of the Valkyrie, I've had trouble pinpointing exactly when she was ever really alive. There is a great deal of evidence to support the idea that for the greater part of the recent past, she was a spell, or more accurately an enchantment that was placed on several women, Samantha Parrington, Barbara Norris, and Sh- I think that's Shan Bowen. The spell was concocted using the spirit of an Asgardian goddess named Brunhilde. After the spirit of the goddess defeated Spawn, the dragon of the moon, she apparently went to the Asgardian afterlife Valhalla. Now the Valkyries of legend travel back and forth from Valhalla to Midgard all the time, conveying the souls of the valiant dead to their rewards. Perhaps the Valkyrie will be a cross will be crossing Bifrost very soon. Whether as a member of the Defenders or as one of the Lady Liberators, the Valkyrie was always a powerful advocate for justice. One of two times the Valkyrie. And finally, looking at Natasha Iglesias' Anime Tarot, where she goes through and assigns all of the trump cards and major arcana to various... Uh, connects to various anime archetypes and symbolism... For the Vigilante, card number... Sorry, I just I just messed that one up. For, the, for Justice, it's the Vigilante. Bromp, bromp. She says, Justice's analog in anime is the Vigilante. The Vigilante brings criminals to justice by any means necessary. Although the Vigilante breaks the law, they know laws are flawed. Whether they're an antihero, a delusional villain, or a well-intentioned extremist, the Vigilante cares so much about... Ro- righting wrongs and achieving justice that they're sometimes surprised when they've made enemies along the way. The one thing to note, however, is that the Vigilante's idea of justice is personal and subjective. Vigilante's appear in Bleach, *Kaname Tosin, Code Geass, Lelouch v. Britannia, Lelouch, <laughs> sorry, uh, psychopath Shinya Kogami Eden of the East, Kuroha Diana, Shiratori, Monster, Doctor Kenzo Tenma, Future Diary, Yomotsu Hirokasaka, and Akame Gakil, Syria Ubiquitous. Really, that's it's quite a name. In summation, to summarize. One thing to remember about the Justice card is that it is not about punishment, good, bad, right, or wrong. It is about adjustment. The sword suggests that sometimes this won't be pleasant. Justice pairs things down with that sword so that the scales end up equal. Swords represent the mind and suggests that Justice only listens to logic, reason, and facts. She will not be tricked by appeals to emotions or passions, nor bribed for that matter. She will be rational and cool-headed. The message is to that you is that you must be cool headed as well and do what's necessary no matter how hard how disagreeable in order to gain or regain equilibrium it's it is not a nice card but it is a very wise card at its core justice is about the search for the truth as you explore your truth you will discover that things are not as clear-cut as you had thought Be prepared to dip into the murky waters and explore what the truth means to you. Be consciously aware of what you believe to be true and what you believe to be fair and ethical. It may not be as clear-cut as you think, so prepare to challenge yourself and to explore new territories of your belief system. Instead of doing a manga of the week, I am doing a Pride Month manga highlight Hi, uh, it's queer manga, highlighting the diversity of characters, topics, and settings of LGBTQ plus-based manga. I have... I really should have numbered this one. So there we go. Numbered, I have about ten... well, I have seven. Uh, and then a few notes. Um, what appears to be much-loved suggestions of queer uh, queer manga that you can read. Starting with Love Me For What I Am by Katya, by Kata Koyama. According to GamesRadar, a lot of these are from Games Radar. I have uh, a bunch of links, like six links down at the bottom of the podcast notes where the section is, uh, where I got all these suggestions for. Most of them are from GamesRadar, because they had really good descriptions, but gathered them from all the lists. Anyway, uh, t- they say, Even though this is a very recent release, Love Me For What I Am already shows Promise as a new LGBTQ plus manga series. Published by Seven Seas Entertainment and released June 2020, the first volume in this three-volume series reintroduces a non-binary protagonist, Mogumo. When a student invites Mogumo to work at a maid cafe, they leave with a chance to be able to present themselves how they want. However, when Mogumo is mistaken for a cross-dressing boy, they assert their gender identity and the rest of the cafe slowly gets to know them better. We also get to know the various queer and genderqueer employees. Together with Mogumo, they gradually confront their issues and grow closer to Mogumo and each other. Number two, Beauty and the Beast Girl by Neji. The Yuri manga retelling of Beauty and the Beast from Seven Seas Entertainment, the single volume of Beauty and the Beast Girl, is a must-read for fans of fairy tales, which is why I included it, because I love retold fairy tales. In this case, our Belle is a blind girl named Lily, while our Beast is a fire-breathing chimera named Heath, who has been shunned for burning down a village. When Lily visits a forest and meets Heath, they help each other realize that they both deserve to be loved. I guess Heath is a girl. Some say that Beauty and the Beast is about learning to appreciate inner beauty, and this manga serves this adage in spades. The manga also explores how those who are shunned experience isolation in different ways, whether it be through being smothered or being confined. With fantasy and romance smartly combined, Beauty and the Beast Girl is a poignant read. Poignant. 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 You know what I mean. This one was on absolutely every list. My Brother's Husband by Gengoro... Gengo... Gengo... Gengogoro Tagame. Took me a second. When a single Japanese dad named Yaichi learns of the death of his estranged twin brother, Ryoji, he must prepare to welcome his twin brother's Canadian husband, Mike. Yaichi's daughter, Hana, has no issues with Mike, but... Yaichi must confront his own grief and homophobia in order to fulfill a promise he made to Ryoji. It is here that a powerful narrative starts to unfold as Yaichi tries to change himself for the better. A major subject is rarely discussed in LGBTQ Subject rarely discussed in LGBTQ plus manga and it's the Western beliefs about gay people versus Japanese beliefs about gay people. The contrast between them is subtle but striking, and is it it is interesting to see how that and family dynamics play a role in Yaichi's estrangement of his brother. All in all, the two-volume My Brother's Husband series is a powerful testament to self-examination, forgiveness, and grief. Next is The Bride Was a Boy by Chi. The single-volume manga The Bride Was a Boy is autobiographical and discusses the mangaka's experiences as a transgender woman. Beginning with chi- with Chi's childhood and ending after she gets married, this book provides startling insight on LGBTQ issues in Japan through a story of gender identity and romance. With a balance of seriousness and lightheartedness, the cute art style combines with words to tell an entertaining and thoughtful tale. For American readers, and especially transgender ones, Chi's story will be simulating, simultaneously familiar and new. The book's title might be a controversial to some, but it was deliberately chosen by the mangaka to bridge her past and present. Despite her initial uncertainty and fears in her early years, the narrative is ultimately about her becoming her true self in adulthood and marrying the love of her life. Number 5. Boys Run the Riot by Keito Gaku From the perspective of the transgender mangaka Keito Gaku, Boys Run the Riot follows Rio, a trans teen boy searching for an escape from the terrifying reality of coming out to a world he fears won't understand and the anxiety he feels every day. Not only does he have a crush on his best friend, who has no idea he's transgender, but he's constantly facing his mother's criticism over why her daughter dresses like a boy. That's just it, though. Rio only only feels safe and comfortable when he's wearing his favorite clothing. This revelation, coupled with the arrival of a cisgender male transfer student, provides Ryo with an outlet. The pair begin working together on their own line of men's fashion as he finally finds the strength to come out at school. Ryo faces those who feel betrayed by his secret, along with those who accept him as he is in style. Number 7, Given by Natsuki Chizu The genre of boys' love has unfortunately developed into something of a reputation for melodramatic plot and unrealistic characters. It's something to get excited about, then, when a series like Given appears. Following a group of teenage boys and the band they formed together, this manga's rich characterization and perfectly paced romance will make readers want to grab an instrument and join in. For fans who prefer anime to manga, there's also an adaptation that was equally well-received. Either way, this gem of a series isn't to be missed. Seven is, our teachers are dating by Pikachu-ohi? Pikachu-ohi? Hayasa- <sighs> Hayama-sensi and Tarano Sensei are two women who work at the same school and just started going out. They're a little shy about their budding relationship, but their co-workers and even their students are rooting for them as they bumble their way through love. Two others I don't have uh, uh, rundowns at all for, but I just I like them. The Witch's Marriage and My Cute Little Kitten as an additional three, uh, three Isake girl love, uh, ones you could say, I guess. One is I'm in Love with the Villainess. Haven't gone too far into that one. Two, The Magical Revolution of the Reincarnate Princess and the Genius Young Lady. Not bad, not bad, pretty good. And three, The Fed-Up Office Lady Wants to Serve the Villainess. Peak. Adam, you had to talk about your queer manga
1: choices. Uh yes, JoJo.
0: JoJo, surprising? No. Continue. Yeah.
1: Uh, it's yeah. I mean, JoJo is gay as hell. Like, He's <laughs> severely gay. Was um, <laughs> the thing that I said when I saw you
0: watching it a lot, or when I I watched a, a few episodes? Um, the the women are all very masculine, and the men are all very feminine.
1: Yeah, like uh, like the one I posted to my story the other day of um, Josuke from. Uh, it was a golden wind? Him posing like with his with his little bag mm, over yeah. his shoulder and his hand on his head poking it out, and then um, they 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 did a homage to that in Chainsaw Man, but it was a woman doing the pose because the JoJo characters like they pose mm-hmm. so feminine, it's ridiculous.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then I believe it's part four. They they actually have like an openly gay stand using couple. Mm. Um, and they're in Italy, of course. Of course. So you can only imagine, like, an openly gay couple in the world of JoJo in Italy, how flamboyantly gay they were if the, quote, air quotes, straight men mm-hmm. look like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, that, that's why I really appreciate it, because, like, that, that show, and, and I'm starting to read the mangas now, it's just very, like, it doesn't shy away from, mm-hmm. like, the, the person who made this creative, if they're not gay, they're extremely heteroflexible, and they <laughs> know it.
0: Um, but it's
1: also really funny to me that i on my on my instagram my my picture is a jojo character with the rainbow flag behind him father Mm -hmm. poochie which he was (laughs) uh, hilarious he's a father but he's gay as hell because like he was like in a relationship with dio he was like dio's little boy toy (laughs) so but what i'm saying is like it's so funny to me that like people have seen my avatar and like been like father poochie wasn't gay and i'm like were you watching or reading the same thing I was? Like, there's literally a scene of them laying in bed together, holding hands, reading books. Just roommates. At the top of a church. Like, they're doing gay shit in a church. Like, (laughs) it's, yeah, this, this, it's so funny that, like, there's still people who will look at something as gay as JoJo and go, nah, nah, this is all dudes being just straight guys, you know? Um, Yeah, JoJo's my gay recommendation. And then also the, the parts seven and eight, are extremely gay. Like, uh, what is it? Part eight, I think, is like literal, like actual, like little twinks in sailor uniforms. Like, it's there. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and this one, I can't believe I didn't mention Kobayashi's Dragon Maid. Oh yeah, um, yeah, Miss Kobayashi's Dragon Maid. I think I, I haven't read more than a couple of the volumes, but oh my god, I've seen the show maybe four times through. <laughs> It's so good! <laughs> um, and then, I believe, just as an added insight that I know, um, the the mangaka of... Uh, the, she created... Um, uh, the Great Jahi Will Not Be Defeated, as well as The Maid I Hired Recently Was Mysterious, Flaming Lesbian. So, support her work and get more gay-ass shit in manga. Because, as it said in one of these, the, the way that they handle things in Japan is very different, and they could kind of loosen that up. But that, we're not going to do anything about that. What am I even talking about? <laughs> Support gayness in Japan! I don't know. Somebody's going to sound clip that, and it's going to sound real bad out of context. The only manga news I have: um, Oshinoko's manga circulation doubled after the anime show started. Unsurprising. I do have to say, if you start reading it, don't get attached to the first character you meet. The one she she's not the main character. She's just a main topic of the <laughs> of the story. Uh, but also, I have otaku calendar linked in the uh, podcast notes if you want to see what's actually coming out for manga in the future, in the next couple of weeks and whatnot, what's come out recently. We're gonna start the comic book segment by going over the things that uh, I finally caught up on, starting with Captain Marvel number 50, which was the final issue of Kelly Thompson run and was just fine. Um, It was great art, um, you know, it was great to see the Friends and everything, you know, classic what Kelly Thompson does best. Um, but I, you know, this, this whole series, you know, especially towards this ending arc has been a bit of a downer in the fact that it's just rehashing. And I understand, obviously, um, the the necessity to face one's trauma, especially in characters like Carol. Um, but I just, it gets so tiring when the entire theme of the series was about her trauma and how she... I was afraid that she was gonna lose it again or something like that basically. She was the one to become Scarlet Witch is what how it ends. And it's like it's not really a reason for her to think that. I don't see the correlation anywhere. Uh but anyway. Wonder Woman number eight hundred. I'm I'm really looking forward to talking about the news that we have for Captain Marvel, but anyway. Wonder Woman number eight hundred I obviously skipped straight to the Tom King kickoff of his series which will start in September, Wonder Woman number 1, or 801, depending on how they decide to do that. Um, it was great. You know, I really liked it. Daniel Perry, Tom King. Uh, the art was beauteous, absolutely wonderful. Um, introducing Trinity as a young woman working with the kind of possibly middle-aged John and Damien as Superman and Batman. Obviously post-Future State era, so that means that Yara is either dead or off doing something else or off-planet, you know. Off screen. Um, And I guess she's sort of been replaced by Trinity slash Lizzie. Um, Her name Elizabeth Uh, Marston is her middle name, which is the guy who is a reference to the dude who created her, of course. Uh, Wonder Woman, that is. Um, So she has three lassos. They did mention what one of them other ones was called. Obviously the lasso of truth. And there's a black one and a silver one. She mentioned one of them, I can't remember what it was called, but there's some dude in a prison and she had to fight their way through with John and Damien. Whatever she's doing, they obviously believe in her, so I think it's fine. <laughs> I think it'll be great. I saw some critiques, um, mostly just about people thinking that, unsurprisingly, that Trinity is just a copy of Yara because she's headstrong and cocky. You know how many male comic book characters are headstrong and cocky? <laughs> Don't get me started on that. This is, it's just a stupid thing. It's like calling characters Mary Sue's. They'll find one tiny little thing that they think is could fit into that definition, and they'll say, there, that makes her whole character, like, the entire, thing like a waste, and write-off, and blah, like, dude, please, give us a fucking break. <laughs> Excuse me, but no, really. Um, as for her fatherhood. There's a dude in a cave. Who the heck is he? We don't know. Not her dad. We know that much. Does she have a dad? Potentially. It says something about um, a war, I want to say, is what they were talking about. The old dude in the cage. For whatever reason that he's there. Um, mentioned, I'll tell you all about your mother, your father, blah blah, blah, blah your uncles, whatever, yeah, your mother's teammates. Whatever it was that he said. So, could be a father, or it could just be like the truth of your father is there is no father. You know, that's what I'm hoping for. But October. No, September. September, Wonder Woman number one. I am ready for that. Speaking of great things, Ultimate Invasion number one was Jonathan Hickman's return to Marvel, and boy was it good. Um, Obviously, a little odd, because it's like more multiverse stuff, and it's the maker, and he's... In- it's bringing up it's bringing up the question that I think people had recently kind of like realized was there and started asking, which was, wait, isn't Miles from another universe? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I feel like a lot of people forgot about that for a while, and then recently were like, hang on, hang on, what about this? <laughs> and I I was one of them for sure. I recently was like, hang on, wasn't Miles not from this earth originally what happened with that this is what's happening with that basically yeah um, and it seems to be great the maker and miles and some other dude who is not important to Canon so nobody cares besides like one comic reader on the internet um, they he talks to miles and is like we are we' are the last gods of a dead planet or something like that dead universe people gave the critique that it's lots of just like dramatic exposition from the maker dude that's what he does <laughs> this is also setting up um it's, it's taking everything it's got to collect it's got to it's got to refresh you on everything that we are at now right the, the ultimate universe is down the maker is this incredible genius dude Blah 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 everything about the maker pretty much Um, and and his universe, and Miles, and their connection, and blah blah blah, like, they had to catch you up on all of that, because you're really supposed to be able to jump into this book without having read the others, which, I'll be a little honest, I've only done some reading up on them, but I haven't read the Invasion stuff, I read the, the Miles stuff back, not back when, but, um, after the fact, but that's different. Um, Ultimate End, or whatever, I never, I never read any of that, so, um, I'm really, I'm confident when I say that you can go into this one without very much knowledge of the Marvel Universe and figure out what's going on. Uh, but basically, to give you a really quick rundown, the Maker escapes prison and makes a copy of the six one six that he can do whatever he wants with. He calls it the six one six zero. There's a whole thing that's kind of clever about how it starts with six one six on the white page. You know, Hickman has white pages, okay? And then it says uh, every great artist steals, and then like the the last white page is 6160, every good story is stolen, or something like that. And it's like, oh, I get it. He stole the, f- the shit, I get it. <sighs> That's what Hickman does to me. That sounded perfect. I apologize. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, the first step, the first thing that he did, um, him being the maker as whatever the name is that he took in that universe now, a uh, big scientist dude who was in charge of lots of science things. So, of course, he stops Peter Parker from getting bit by the spider and becoming Spider-Man. That sets off a lot of changes in that universe, so we'll have to see... I mean, in the traditional, what was it, 1310, whatever the heck universe he was from. Um, so we'll see how other things begin to change will be a little bit less um, intensive on the rest of this stuff here, but... JSA number four, Justice Society of America over at DC. Still really liking this. Huntress as in Helena Wayne, not Bertinelli. She isn't meant to be in the modern timeline the way that she is. So the villain Degation, I don't know why that's his name, he can't see what she's going to be doing with his powers, which is how he's killing and stopping everybody else. She is able to shoot off his finger wearing the kryptonite ring. And then it cuts to. Remember how I said I wasn't paying attention to the army sequences in the previous issues? This catches it up with that. So now I get it. He's working with his older self, who who knows now that the younger self failed because uh, he arrives back in the 1940s during World War II for whatever reason, and his older self doesn't have that finger now, so he knows obviously. Oh, he just went back and he just went and lost his finger, and um, so uh. So Degation's DNA is constantly changing as the Justice Society members who survived now are studying in the lab. And they, they realize that he is performing a sacrificial ritual across the timelines of the Justice Society. If he kills this group, the modern one, he erases them from history entirely and his spell is complete. There's also something going on with Dr. Midnight and Wildcat and some kind of curse or sickness that they have. No idea, frankly. Purgatory Must Die ended with issue number five, and some I have mixed feelings because she gives up her ability to absorb the essence and knowledge of her victims in order to call off the gods who are trying to kill her, which is classic female depowerment. You see it everywhere. They do it with Carol in her own series. They do it with... Um, Scarlet Witch. They did it with, I'm sure, Monica Rambeau. Um, Hellcat, they kind of are fixing it with now, which is great. But yeah, classic Female Depowerment. Hopefully they'll give me more of the series, though, because I would still read it. Dark Knights of Steel number 11 of 12, but we know there's going to be more coming at some point in the future. Uh, Basically, it's all parties aligning against the White Martians. Power Girl Special 2023 introduces, sort of, Page Star is her new name, not Karen Starr. Now she's Page Star. Really good issue, although I could have sworn that her omen was going to be a villain. Was I wrong in thinking that? Poison Ivy number 13 has three different artists. The second one is tragic. The third one is really good for something that was made in the 90s or has that kind of feel, but this this series really doesn't, so I don't know why they made that choice. And the next stuff we're going to see from that is going to be night terrors, apparently. Daredevil and Echo, number one, was some kind of goblin taking a pound of flesh for whoever the blind one is. And there is a kid who is mute, I believe, or deaf, possibly. I think she's deaf. Um, Who is causing destruction across Hell's Kitchen, of course. You've Been Canceled, number one. Yes, it is a series about... Um, when you're cancelled, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a TV show, <laughs> and uh, the cameras throughout the world, and city or whatever, chase you down, and then people try to hunt you down and kill you, and publicly, and ta-da, you be and then of course it ends with the system being hacked, and the number one killing agent is assigned, assigned for cancelling, so, wow, no, you know, plot twist. Loki number one by Dan Waters is a uh, good start, I guess. I believe it started with Loki getting killed, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but that's not new. Um, I don't know. We'll see how it kind of goes. I think they're setting him up for a romance with Scarlet Witch, which generally, I'm kind of surprised it hasn't happened already. But we'll see how that goes when we get there. Harley Quinn number 30 had too much writing in it. And, in my opinion, the Nicole Maines-Mindy Lee story was so much better than the main issue. Uh, Mindy Lee is just phenomenal with all of her fun fantasy designs for DC characters. X-Men Before the Fall Mutant's first strike is, you know, super dramatic. I'm not looking forward to this event. Uh, there's Mutant's hero strike team now. They wear red and white. They're, you know, Jean and Scott. Like, standard shit, basically. And then a bunch of characters who they didn't elaborate on. Doctor Strange number three, the artist was very clearly not given enough time. Doctor Strange number four, uh, based on everything I read here, it looks like they're gonna be removing Clea from the situation or possibly from Steven's life or something, uh, by making her a villain or having her force herself to sort her of prove herself again, even though she just, you know, kind of saved him resurrecting him a little bit, you know. But I guess that doesn't count. Um, Maleficent number two is still really good. The little kid who she turned into a fox, his brother comes for him and drama ensues. DC Pride 2023 was excellent. Um, If you try to say that you completely understand the Grant Morrison story, you are lying. I understand the characters, but I do not know what was going on there. Uh, And that is standard Grant Morrison, and that's why we love them. Uh, Harley and Ivy story was really cute. I don't remember the rest, to be honest. Hairball number... No- oh, there was one with um. Midnighter and Sunbeam. What's their names? Midnighter and... Apollo. Apollo, thank you. I don't know what Sunbeam. Uh, yes, that one was good, too. Anyway, Hairball number three, Evil Cat, I like. Uh, Ambassadors number six Uh, ends with the question, Do we need a token American... And also we discovered that the old man who came out was actually not gay at all. I will not be keeping up with Star Signs number two. It turns out that you have to be really into astrology. And I am not into astrology like that. Avengers number two. uh, It's a total ripoff from the idea of the jackpot from the peripheral. If you've seen that on Amazon. Um, The jackpot and the peripheral is basically like these various events over the course of a few decades that decimate the planet's population, like more than decimated, it, it goes, you lose 7 billion people. Um, and so basically the thing that Kang wanted to warn Carol about at the end of the first issue was that basically is going to happen on earth. And it starts that day with a thousand people dying in these mass traumas that they're able to stop with his help because he's from the future um, yeah, that's they they stole that from the peripheral. Yep, totally. It's, it's, it's still good. It's a good idea. It's a good story. But I I see what you did there, guys. Uh, also introduces some new villain uh, and their fabricated helpers. I think is what it said, uh, and something called the Impossible City, which arrives at the end of the issue. So I'm I'm still in I'm still in it. I think it's Jed McKay. He's doing all right. Christopher Cantwell, Hellcat number four basically has the argument that patsy and damon were destined for one another from the start due to her demonic history and possibly tendencies that will be expanded on in future issues or on the next issue i guess um because we all know about the back in the defenders when the whole thing uh, her mom died and oh she could live forever if you know this demon if she sold her soul to this demon and and then she did that for her daughter, to her daughter, and then when she died, the demon came to collect and yeah, that was the whole thing. Um but this is kind of writing off of that and the idea that maybe Patsy was always had something demonic within her. Um and that's possibly why her mom didn't have an issue making that deal. Titans number 2 just kidding Wally isn't dead, it's a duplicate body potentially from the future. Uh the end uh, cliffhanger is that Tempest, the Aqualad, slash Aquaman, I don't know what they call him now. Well, it's Tempest is what they call him, but whatever, he's he's that. He is like Aqualad, basically. He joined up with uh, Brother Blood, who now calls himself Brother Eternity, so that's cool, I guess. Spirit World number two is still really awesome. It had me thinking about how the magical talismans in traditional Chinese mysticism um, are potentially, like, the kickoff point inspiration wise for like how magical girls in a lot of shows have like cards like card capture sakura and um a bunch that i can't remember right now on the spot but the cards do various spells and tricks i feel like that's definitely connected like those two ideas well um the magical girls cards came from talismans chinese talisman papers possibly yes no maybe but it's still good i really like spirit world Something epic number two is still really interesting. It's a little bit too much text in this issue for my patience level today when I read it. <laughs> um, but it's it's still really interesting. I'm curious what's going on with this kid who can see this like weird other universe and possibly interact with it. Victory number one is a spin-off from uh, Christopher Priest's previous Vampirella work. It's actually been a while since we've seen him writing Vampirella. Um and even longer since Victory, so it's interesting they have the spin-off now. But I really enjoyed the first issue. It's by David F. Walker of Bitter Root, if you are familiar with that one, um, and the art really fits um, the kind of stylization of the story that he's telling. So um, I'm gonna see how the next few issues go. Lastly, Click Click Boom is an indie comic about a girl who takes Polaroids and shoots up banks, <laughs> uh, but she can't speak, she's mute, and then she saves this woman from these corporate villains, and I'm sure we'll figure the rest out later, but I really enjoyed it. Now talking new comics coming out this week, it'll be uh, June 28th, the last week for comics in June. We're going to do this one alphabetically for, you know, reasons. Daredevil Echo number two, we have Phil Noto interiors, which is enough to keep me going on that one. Um. Otherwise, was it Mark Wade? Hang on, let me open the page. Taboo. Wow, I was wrong. Taboo and B. Earl. Um. <laughs> hey, that's a compliment, right? I thought. But anyway, uh, then we have Harley Quinn number thirty-one, which is going more into the teeny Howard Harley Quinn. Um. We have the second story by Heather Campbell and Philia Bratukin which uh, seems to be about a uh, Carly as a Mecca, which will be fun. I've really been enjoying the dream sequence stories that they've been doing at the end, um, so hopefully they'll keep doing that. Bunch of variant covers, like a whole bunch of variant covers. We've got uh, Sweeney is obviously doing the main cover. Um, let's see, Nathan Cerdzi, I believe is this guy's name. He's doing two, well, a couple of different ones. He's got, Jesus, a number of them. Um, this is Claire Rowe. Jenny Frizzin, of course, is going to be the one that I'm going to be getting. Clayton Crane has uh, two variants, technically a version variant and a regular one. And then Frilia Brattukin, the one who's doing that second story. I apologize for not doing the name at all. Well, oh, that is a mecha story. That's cool. You can see the cover for that one is going to be based in their mecha story, which looks highly detailed. So that should be pretty cool. Anyway, back to what we were doing. We also have She-Hulk number 14 coming out this week. We got another cool Jen Bartell cover, and we obviously know that she and this scoundrel dude are going to, like, get together. We know this. Uh, The Derek Chu variant cover as as well as the the Jen Bartell cover. Storm number two, um, I don't think I am reading this one to be honest. Thor number thirty-five by Toren Grombeck, uh, who I just support because she took over the Thor series from the di- the guy, you know, the other one. Um, and then Vampirella versus the Superpowers number two continues. Um, Vampirella versus Red Sonia, and finally X Men Before the Fall continues with Heralds of Apocalypse. Now this one might actually be kind of interesting in writing, so it's kind of, like, up and down, honestly, for the quality of that. Um, but then we have all of the cool, um, Arako characters, you know, like Apocalypse and his wife, uh, Genesis, um, you know, and Sabineur, Genesis, their children. Uh, I, that's just all creations of Hickman, and just fantastic. For some reason also, there's a Ms. Marvel cover, but it's a good cover, so I'm not going to argue with it. I don't hate it. And by Ms. Marvel, I mean Carol Danvers. I should have... Not Kamala, it was Carol. Comic Book News has a couple of really fun things to talk about before we uh, go over what's new for the Big Two coming September. Uh, first off, Kelly Thompson's new gig is uh, announced at DC Comics' Birds of Prey, Breaking Hearts and Faces, September 2023. The lineup caused quite a stir online. We got Black Canary, Big Barda, Orphan, aka Batgirl, Harley Quinn, and Zealot. So quite an interesting lineup here, but it is worth noting this will be just for the first arc. And we were talking about this one earlier. Um, A lot of people don't like the fact that Harley Quinn is going to be a part of the team because I know you're saying she's, she's better as, like, a villain or an antihero. I don't think villain is really the word that I would want to describe her as, because, I mean, I don't even know if I would describe Poison Ivy as a villain. She's the eco-terrorist. <laughs> it's a little different. There's some wiggle room there. Um, but you were saying that she you think she should
1: really fit on this team, right? Yeah, the, I saw people saying, well, the thing that people were saying is that she's better as, like, a, a chaotic bad guy. Um, than she is as, like, the, the anti-hero. Which I can I can kind of see. Um, but I think that, especially her her role in this team, being a chaotic person, who's like, yeah, fuck that, let's kill this guy. Let's go ahead. Let's bash his head in. I think that's fun, because you need... Not fun, but you need somebody who's gonna, like, we can't let this keep going on. And then the reason why that, you know, she's there, and that works so well, is that you have Barda as well. Somebody mm-hmm. who's literally seen, like, true evil, and can mm-hmm. actually step in and go no, Harley is right, we should end this person, or no, Harley is wrong, we mm-hmm. should not. Um, so I think both of them together will be cause a lot of interesting interactions, mm-hmm. and then both of them are kind of in the same way of, like, if it's something bad and evil, we have to nip it in the butt, regardless of what anybody thinks about mm-hmm. it.
0: Yeah, Big Bart is really the sell for me on this one. Obviously, I made the podcast special mostly about her. Um, I'm very curious, one thing, how they're going to handle her personal life if they're gonna even mention it because that's really genuinely left up in the air at DC and I think Tom King when he finished writing um Mr. Miracle even said like yeah it's up to whoever comes in next to kind Mm -hmm. of interpret how they want to take this bitch how do you answer questions then when people Mm -hmm. come to you and say so is he dead or is he alive and that's really what I'm getting at here is Oh, and there's the other thing, yeah, there's the other thing where in Future State, there was something where the Mr. Miracle of Future State, who is The Apprentice, whose name I can't think of right this second, um, he ends up fighting their daughter, who's apparently their only child. They had a son in Tom King's Mr. Miracle. It was not Black Label, it was in canon. That Another point of, somebody please... Take the wheel and tell us how it ended! Because <laughs> it's. I would like to know, uh, should I start shipping Barda with other dudes or other chicks, or is she still married? Because I gotta know. Zealot is from Wildstorm.
1: Yes, yeah. Yeah, a lot of people Jim are... Lee imprint.
0: Jim Lee imprint. Yeah, a lot of people are really upset about her new costume. I genuinely don't think I can care. I don't think I can make myself care that much about that period. Sorry. Not sorry. Um, I think they look fine as long as they have a reason to be wearing, for whatever reason, looks like Japanese-inspired armor uh, as an alien.
1: So, like, Ronan armor.
0: Yeah, it's a little bit odd in that sense because she's definitely an alien. I I saw that on Google for sure. Um, But, yeah, somebody can explain that to me, too, I guess, when we start the series. Uh, Weird thing that does not inspire too much hope in me. I know Kelly Thompson is usually really good. Um, She didn't seem to know, based on Twitter interactions, well, she straight up said that she didn't know there was such a huntress fandom, that she had no idea when she announced this lineup that so many people would be upset she didn't include Huntress. She said she understood Barbara, but she said the Barbara thing is going to be explained in the initial issues, so whatever. I don't care really that much anyway. You got Black Canary, I feel like that's enough. Um, But it's a little odd that she was that out of touch with actual readers, that she was unaware of the Helena Bertinelli family family, (laughs) phantom. I'm sure they call themselves her family. Uh, But yes, there are a lot of them, and so that was kind of odd that she was surprised people wanted Helena on the team. Of course they do! <laughs> she was an OG Birds of Prey, kind of. Mm-hmm. Raphael Grandpa has a story that he is putting out for a black label uh, in October that is gonna, or in September actually. It's called Gargoyle, Batman Gargoyle of Gotham. Now, if you don't know who Raphael Grandpa is, he is this incredibly stylized um, South American artist who. Was pretty much handpicked by Frank Miller to be his protege, in terms at least of art. I don't know about in storytelling, but definitely in terms of art, he was the one that Frank Miller picked to take his place as the writer. Sorry, as the artist in his final The Dark Knight, Golden Child. Yeah, his final Dark Knight uh, entity or whatever it was story, which was the Golden Child which was really great, and Grandpa's art was fantastic in that. Um, So his Gargoyle of Gotham is, I'll talk about it more when we get to the new in September stuff, but, I mean, you get a highly stylized artist in a very particular kind of themology period, where it's like, uh, what was it It supposed to be, like the 1940s or something in Gotham? Like, (laughs) you got me. (laughs) You really got me.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say, uh, you know, of course, go back and you know read Golden Child, but like you'll see how great Grandpa's art is. But the whole thing was is that um, DC wanted Frank Miller to come back and write another chapter to his Dark Knight universe, um, and apparently the whole thing part of it was is that he was like, "I'm not gonna draw it. I'll write it," but the only way I'll come back and do it is if you let me pick this kid and let him do the art, and it was Raphael Grandpa. Mm-hmm. Um, so that kind of lets you know that, like, if Frank Miller's putting that much behind him, mm-hmm. then, and the art definitely speaks for itself. I mean, just look at his Instagram page. It's always something yeah. awesome. And he's doing the, uh, he also did the uh, Berserk comic as well. But, yes, yeah, he was he was fantastic with,
0: uh, God, everything he does is really fantastic. So I'm excited to see uh, Batman Gargoyle of Gotham. Yeah. black label, and I'm sure they're going to let him go all
1: out with the detail. Yeah, I love that it's, it's, it's his own thing. He can like use a lot of the stuff he's learned from Frank and like that inspiration for carving out your own corner and do it.
0: Meanwhile, back at Marvel, they are uh, apologizing to Hickman for kicking him off of X-Men by slobbering all over his entire body um, with uh, praise, pretty much. We have two things going on. Obviously, Ultimate Invasion just kicked off. Uh, But we also have Gods coming up, which is going to kick off around the Hellfire Gala, which is right around the corner. Um, Gods, G-O-D-S. No idea what that stands for. I'm sure we'll figure it out at some point, or somebody already knows, and I'm just stupid. Um, But these two articles I have linked in my podcast notes were posted one day and then the next day, focusing on these two Hickman projects. I just think it's absolutely brilliant that... (laughs) the. they 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 thought they got rid of him and now they realize they can't live without him anyway uh ultimate invasion was good in case you missed that uh but finally for comic book news sort of finally uh captain marvel by Alyssa wong uh is gonna be the new captain marvel series It'll be Alyssa Wong and Jan Bazelda, whose name I'm sure I butchered. Um, Fantastic artist, currently one of the Marvel Stormbreakers, which is an initiative they seem to keep pushing. Um, Alyssa Wong, on the other hand, is currently the writer for Spirit World, which I just went off about for like 10 seconds about how much I like it, which is a lot on this podcast sometimes. Um, So you kind of got me. Obviously, I'm I have a Captain Marvel-themed tattoo. I'm obviously going to read probably anything Captain Marvel, regardless of if it's actually that good. Um, (laughs) But I think this will be really good. Interestingly enough, uh, they asked... (laughs) so It's a win and it's a loss at the same time. They asked Jen Bartell to redesign her Hellfire Gala outfit for this year into her new costume, which is excellent because it is high and mighty time that she gets her own that Carol gets a costume that's kind of themed for herself and not for Marvel, which is what it's always been as her Captain Marvel costume. And yes, Kelly Thompson gave her a handful of other variations of costume, which all lasted for about an issue each. Too bad they didn't go for more because it was really, frankly, cool. I really liked a lot of them. Um, so yes, I love the fact she's got this new outfit. I really like it. It's got a jacket design. I actually prefer it without the jacket. Um, she, Jen Bartell was very open with the fact that the inspiration from it came from the the military lady um, from the animated Atlantis Lost Empire movie. You know the blonde military lady, um, <laughs> which I can totally see, and it makes me laugh. And that's part of why I like it without the jacket better. But um, once again, Marvel themselves proving that the Hellfire Gala outfits are nothing but just another version of their day-to-day outfits. So, still a little disappointed by the Hellfire Gala outfits. I'm fine with these, the, the ones that we're getting as super outfits, the regular day-to-day ones, but the Hellfire Gala ones should have originally been more remarkable. So what they say they've already got the solicit out so far it says highest furthest fastest. Carol Dampers is one of the powerhouses of Mar- Marvel Universe, a woman capable of harnessing the energy of the sun. So if you're coming for Earth, she's the first one you take off the board. And someone's figured out how to do just that, introducing a new supporting cast and villains both beloved and dangerously fresh as Wong and Misulda's Bazalduas, exhilarating new series kicks off. I'll 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 be there. We'll talk about it when we get there. Lastly, uh, it was confirmed the Iron Man Emma Frost wedding, which I talked about. I think in the last episode. Um, people don't really seem to get it or like it, and I I get that. Honestly, I I think the people who are thinking that it's all going to be a ruse for the the X Men thing that they're doing at that time, they're probably right. Let's be honest. Um, But anyway, new for what's coming in September for the big two. uh, Strictly new things and the very notable ones. We have Captain America number one, starting by J. Michael Straczynski and Jesus Saiz. Predator vs. Wolverine will be a four-issue series, starting by Benjamin Percy with a variety of artists. Avengers Incorporated number one, Al Ewing and Leonard Kirk. Daredevil number one restarts by Saladin Ahmed and Aaron Cooter. Spine-Tingling Spider-Man Number 0 from Marvel Unlimited uh, gets printed out by Saladin Ahmed and Juan Feria. Uncanny Spider-Man 1 of 5 by C. Spurrier and Lee Garbett. Then we have X-Men Dark, which is where we're going to be seeing Madeline Pryor, and I will be there. Uh, we get the wedding special X-Men 26 and Invincible Iron Man Number 10. It's a crossover special because they love to have us buy more books. These are going to be both written by Gary Duggan with art by Stefano Caselli and Juan Frigiera. Uh, the covers are both by Lucas Wernick and I believe they are connecting. We also get covers by Alex Ross, Javier Garron, Mark Brooks, Jorge Molina, Megan Hetrick, Kafu, Jorge Perez, which I guess is a throwback. Um, no, Jorge, George, whatever. Lucas Wernick. Um, I think that's it that they have so far. What it says is the moment that we swore would never happen. Heck, the moment Emma Frost swore would never happen is here at last. At the Frost Stark knot is tied in the Invisible Iron Man number 10. Emma's mutant family reacts to the surprise news. And then Invisible Iron Man number 10 says, You are cordially invited to the wedding of Anthony Edward Stark and G- Emma Grace Frost. Come join the lucky couple as we exchange vows. Attire is hellfire formal. or kiss ready to follow. Okay. We'll see how that goes. Then we have Ghost Rider Wolverine, Weapons of Vengeance Omega, number one. It's a one shot, of course. Werewolf by Night, number one, featuring Elsa Bloodstone by Derek Landy and Fran Galen. Spider Gwen Annual, Spider. uh, Ooh, I put that twice. Spider Gwen Annual, X Men Annual, Avengers Annual. Alligator Loki, all one shots. Strange Academy Moon Knight is a one shot. Star Wars Obi Wan Kenobi, one of six by Jodie Hauser. And then over at DC, Batman Catwoman The Gotham War kicks off with Battle Lines and Red Hood, I believe, one-shots. Chip Sarsky and Matt Rosenberg. Batman and Robin number 1 by Joshua Williamson and Simone de Mayo. Birds of Prey number 1, as we spoke about, by Kelly Thompson and Leonardo Romero. Bruce Betch is doing a series of covers across uh, this month's DC issues as well, including Wonder Woman number 1 by Tom King and Daniel Sapere. I will be there for that. Then we have The Flash number 1. By C. Spurrier and Mike Diodata Jr. Power Girl No. 1 by Leah Williams. Fire and Ice Welcome to Smallville by Joanne Starr and Natasha Bustos. Blue Beetle by Josh Trujillo. And then Green Lantern War Journal by Philip Kennedy Johnson. DC's Ghouls Just Want to Have Fun. And at last, Batman Gargoyle of Gotham. Story, Art, and Cover by Raphael Grampa, Variants by Jim Lee, Frank Miller, David Finch. Paul Pope and Priscilla Petrates. He got Frank Miller to do a cover for him. Isn't that cool? I'll read you this as the solicit for this one because I'm excited for it. When you chase your own shadow, it leads you into the abyss. In a Gotham city where every day feels darker and more irredeemable than the last, Batman makes a definitive choice to kill off the Bruce Wayne identity for good and embrace the cowl full time. But though he knows the streets of Gotham, Batman will soon come to find that he hardly knows himself. A serial killer is on the loose, and while the murder victims seem random at first, every clue draws Batman closer to the terrifying truth, that they are all connected, not just to each other, but to him. When an all-new rogues gallery of depraved villains begins to emerge from the depths of the city, Batman will have to contend with the very nature of evil, including that which lurks inside the darkest corners of his own heart to face what's coming for his city. Batman Gargoyle of Gotham brings Raphael Grandpa's twisted vision of both the Dark Knight and the city of Gotham to life in a DC writing debut that will reach its icy black tendrils into the deepest and darkest corners of human nature and leave you gasping for breath and for more. It's also coming with a noir edition, so that'll be fun. And that brings us to the TV and movies, the final segment of the podcast. Um, since this has been kind of delayed, some of the things that I was going to mention, hey, this is going to start soon, have started. Um, such as New Worlds and Secret Invasion. Strange New Worlds started the 15th. We have had two episodes. Secret Invasion started the 21st. We will talk about both of those momentarily. Uh, I also started the English dub of Farming Life at Another World, of which there have been three episodes I really enjoy it. Although we're on episode three and the harem is vast. We'll see. Uh, School Island is an animated show on Netflix. It's very much of the Justice League animated stuff that they've been putting out in the past couple of years. That kind of style. Very good show. I've been really enjoying it. Um, when does it take place? What? Mot- the School Island show. I want to say, like, 80s
1: or 90s. It definitely takes place after the movie.
0: Yeah, the School Island movie, which is a great movie, by the way, if you yeah. haven't seen it. They have they have quite a few throwbacks to the movie, uh, like Easter eggs, you might say, so that's really fun. Um, and just generally quality-made, I think. Um, we watch, or I watch, the majority of the peripheral. I watched the whole thing. Adam watched some of it. Um, <laughs> I, already, I already talked about it a little bit with the... Uh, the jackpot notion and how they're doing that in the adventure series right now. I thought it was kind of funny. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's it's good. It's interesting. It's got some interesting concepts and ideas and whatnot. Um, although it was very obvious from like the get-go that as soon as she popped up in that second world, it was reality. So it was just the twist of time. And then finally, the From season 2 finale was today. I watched it already, and I loved it. Um, (laughs) How do you get back to a place that doesn't exist without them throwing you... How do you even explain that without getting thrown into some kind of cell with padding on the walls? It's a good question, but were the children trying to get her out to save her the whole time? Was that why they were calling for her? Because he just saved her. He didn't break the whole thing, right? Also, the, the symbol, the symbol, I'm curious where that's leading us, but they're doing a pretty decent job at tying up the, uh, the loose ends of everything. There's, there's only loose ends right now. <laughs> uh, they t- they, they, they uh, kind of started bringing us in a few directions for some of them, so we'll see uh, if they mess it up like they did with Lost or if they do okay. Going into news and announcements and rumors, we have two rumors we're going to talk about. First is a fun rumor that Jenny, K-pop star, is rumored to have been cast as Luna Snow in an upcoming MCU project. Luna Snow is a member of the Agents of Atlas, which is an all-Asian and Asian-American super team um, that kind of popped up during War of the Worlds first. Well, the modern iteration of them, which is that, pops up in World or the War, uh, War of the Realms. Ha! Funny how you mix those up. Um, and she is, in the comics, a superhero and K-pop star, so it would be kind of perfect. Um, I would love to see that, and I would love to see more Asian characters, especially from Agents of Atlas in, um, in MCU stuff, because I feel like that would be a great, a great team to see. The other rumor is that Deadpool 3 has another actor spotted on set. Apparently, this time it is Ben Affleck. What does Ben Affleck have to do with anything? Well, (laughs) he did that one Daredevil movie. Um, So what we're kind of thinking, I guess, is that they're throwing the kitchen sink at Deadpool 3. Because they're filming during the writer's strike still. Um, And speaking of Deadpool 3, it's been moved up six months. Which it's not the direction you want to see films being moved when they're being worked on adequately. Right. Um, thoughts on Deadpool three and Ben Affleck and
1: all that. Um, if he's in there, it's probably going to be, um, him as daredevil, of course, from that horrible movie. <laughs> and they're probably going to use a bunch of, uh, archival footage from the Fox movies and, you know, them green screening into that. Um, It's whatever, it's fine, it'll be... But yeah, just like you said, it moving up six months, and then the fact that they can't make any changes because of the Writer's Guild strike, and then Deadpool is a character where he is known for his ad-libbing and riffing, Mm -hmm. it's just, I just feel like it's so off, and for this to be like, for them to be like, this is the movie that we want Disney to be able to do, like, R-rated movies, I feel like Mm -hmm. it might fall flat on its face, and then... I kind of feel like now, like, the, the bar for a lot of superhero movies, especially Deadpool, is kind of the floor. Because people, I saw this viral tweet that people were like, Oh my god, it'd be so cool if Deadpool 3 is just them getting together all the old uh, Marvel movies just for them all to die. And so I'm like, so you want the same plot as the second movie, and you guys are thinking that's good? Um, See, so yeah, just my expectations for this aren't very high. I didn't very much like the second Deadpool movie. I think the first one was a lot better. I thought the second, they they put more jokes into it, it just... Mm-hmm. They try too hard. It kind of felt mm-hmm. like, yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Deadpool. I just don't like the the Hollywood Deadpool. It's become the Hollywood Deadpool. It's become and the the, the people who are fans of Deadpool now are like really like <laughs> annoying and don't really grasp what the character is. It's more of meant to like he jokes because he so feels so bad about himself and the way he looks on the inside. Not like I'm this edgy guy who makes jokes mm-hmm. kind of deal. Yeah. And then on the on the trend of kind of harping
0: on things, are you ready to talk about the Flash movie?
1: Yeah, the uh the I, I do gotta say though, um, the rock was indeed correct about the entire hierarchy of the DC universe oh, changing. Yeah. Um, because ever since that, uh <laughs> the movies have just gotten worse and
0: it has it's gone away. None, yeah, it's, it's gone it's, a it's certain gone, way.
1: I mean he was kinda right about that. <laughs> um besides the distasteful stuff of the Christopher Reeve you know, CGI. And Mm -hmm. and then the thing that's, Wild to me about the the Teddy Sears John Wesley ship thing. That was they,
0: crazy. N-
1: the, you know, neither party, neither one of them, and then even Teddy <laughs> Sears straight up says, "I would remember being on set of a big dude, DC movie." Like dude, what that.
0: was it? it was it was an Instagram post, right? Yeah, but he just was like, "I've been re- I've been at home been with new- a newborn yeah. baby and just been like wiping its diaper, and I see that I'm in this movie. I have no recollection of that." Yeah, that is PR nightmare. Well, yeah, right and there then, for and starters, then, and then so
1: that really makes me believe that, like, yeah, they definitely did not the christopher reeve approval or sign off yeah. to use that um and then it doesn't even sound like they they really got nick cage to actually be there as well um <laughs> so it's just like yeah it's just all of that and then the stuff with of course ezra miller and which was never handled the way that it should have been no and then and then the whole okay it's probably i'm gonna get into whatever spoilers are and then the fact that like the big bad was just an evil Barry, that that door was literally open for you guys to do reverse flash. Like it, it was right or zoom
0: there. even either
1: one. But like that door was wide open, and they're like, now nah, we're just gonna get an evil version of Barry Allen and do this." You want you want Teddy Sears in the movie? Give
0: him his role that he played in the Flash TV show as Zoom.
1: No. <laughs> yeah, um, and then the fact that the the nostalgia bait of Michael Keaton couldn't even save this movie. Yeah, oh my gosh, um,
0: him, him doing absolutely nothing with his final, I think he just wanted to end the horror of what the hell is this happening to the world, like, like we've said over and over again, 1989 Batman in his rubber suit ain't got shit on Kryptonians in spaceships.
1: And the thing that's also very comical to me about it is that they even show in the preview and in, like, clips of the movie that he has an armored suit, but Mm -hmm. he still chooses to wear, like, the silicone one. (laughs) Um, And then, yeah, I'm pretty sure... And then his... his, Somebody... um, The scene of him crashing his batwing into the Kryptonian ship and killing himself, kamikaze style... does nothing. It does nothing at all. It doesn't even break the shield ship. It doesn't even break through the shield. Um, but somebody made a great edit of, uh, what is it, Freebird by mm-hmm. Leonard Skinner? Fantastic. It made it funny because his look on his face isn't a guy who's about to, like, say. Sec- He's smiling. Like, he is fucking hyped for this. Like, he is so hyped to kill himself. Like, that, I feel like it's a little bit of Michael Keaton showing. I don't want to be He just wanted this movie an anymore. out from yeah. this
0: universe. Yeah. I guess that repeats itself over and over and over again a whole bunch um, while they try to fix it. And then Supergirl. Dies, but is possibly saved after the fact. I'm not sure yeah, how that goes. Uh, but apparently, dies not, twice, and that's she's hilarious. She's not a relevant character in the whole thing really much at all because Zod just knocks her out. Um, also, Barry takes out Zod's girlfriend without like even trying, which. You know that clip has been surfaced and all over of Man of Steel for wiping out soldiers. Well, so. it, yeah,
1: it's like Barry, a dude who's never had actual fight training versus an actual Kryptonian oh fucking soldier who's traveled across light years to do this. And then, but whatever. Um, I was uh, gonna- yeah, I was going to say Barry too.
0: I have not seen anything but just absolutely like walking the edge of offensive humor about that. Um, not people's takes on it, but, like, what it actually is. Oh. Uh, well, I, I don't think there's anything else that I can say that wasn't just, like, wildly out there. But, yeah, it didn't look enjoyable.
1: <laughs> and then also the whole fact that there's literally a scene of Flash putting a baby in a microwave. <laughs> I mean... There yeah, is... there's...
0: And then they gave the they gave the Brave and the Bulls to this guy, and the dude's humor clearly does not hit. It is, like, anything in this movie, like, the the one clip of the, whatever the Pepe Le Pew or whatever the thing was, Speedy Gonzalez, yeah, that's what it was. Like, that was not funny at all. I had to watch that clip a number of times to even figure out what was happening, because that was horrendously unfunny. So,
1: um, please and, stop getting these man movies. And the most important cameo of all in this movie was actual George Clooney. <laughs> um, being there. Uh, and then also, the, I just literally thought of this just now, because you said that he's also doing the Brave and the Bold mm-hmm. Batman and Robin movie. Mm-hmm. Would not surprise me if they do something absolutely stupid. It's George Clooney Batman with a Damian Wayne Robin.
0: I highly doubt George Clooney would go along with that, but money you, does you, talk.
1: I would say you never know, and in this state of weird movies that James Gunn has like been making choices for and these behind the scenes, yeah. it wouldn't surprise me.
0: And of course since you know before the movie came out James Gunn is pushing this as like this is the this is the this is the great movie this is the one that I chose to keep on the slate because I believed in it so much blah 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 and now that it's out and it's failing miserably like legitimately failing in the theaters oh no, that
1: was all them, I had yep. nothing to do with this one. And he deleted all the tweets that were saying this is, that he personally chose to Oh my god, did he mid- really? Yeah, so- Dude, the so, internet doesn't work that way. People screenshot shit as soon as you post it. So yeah, so like, that's why I'm kind of like, really like, I don't, anything that he says, I don't take, I don't put any value no. in. Because he was literally saying that like, oh yeah, there, you, this you guys- This is going to be the step to kick uh, off my universe. Well, I, I'll never forget, he, he said vividly, there was a reason why we didn't take this movie off the release schedule. It's so great and grandiose. And then it comes out and he says, oh yeah, I didn't actually want to release this. It was one of the things that we had to do. So what? why, so which one is it, man? And then just like the whole thing of him saying, you know, he had no choice over who to cast, but then he's saying, I casted my wife in these projects. Mm-hmm. But You were just saying you couldn't control who was in the casting. I, I'm, I'm not a Snyder apologist at all. I do. I, Hey guys, this movie foreign concept to you, but James Gunn, and Zack Snyder can both be bad at the same time.
0: No, they are. <laughs> For very similar reasons, if we're being honest, uh, they I, I don't think Snyder has a sense of humor, because I don't think that really goes anywhere in the stuff that he makes, really. No, yeah. um, but James Gunn obviously has a bad sense of humor. It's very childish and inappropriate. Which leads me to the last point before we get back to happier things here. I just... its The more I think about it, the more boggling it is that this man... Gives himself everything so unabashedly and so unashamedly that he has assigned himself not just the director, which is a whole other thing, than being the writer of Superman Legacy. The next Superman movie, which is supposed to be the big step in this new, the the, the first official thing, undeniably James Gunn project in the James Gunn DC Extended, you, you know... It's it's supposed to be that, right? It's supposed to show how phenomenal of a world they're spinning us, right? Why did... What... <laughs> what the hell kind of reasons does any... Besides him being in charge? Does anybody have for thinking James Gunn could write that movie? Look at the shit he's written in the past. Humorous Gardens of the Galaxy. Oh, there's some heart in it. What about the heart in this last movie? Which was 100% emotional manipulation, and frankly, poorly overdone emotional manipulation. There is zero reason for any of us to have faith that this man could write a movie about the most beloved, heartfelt character in American storytelling, without a doubt. Like, I don't, I don't, when has he ever done anything remotely of that theme? Never! Never! He can't write Superman. Are you kidding me? Give us a one-shot comic and see if we can even get through that. And then we'll see if you can write the fucking movie. Like, who told this man he could write Superman? I just, the more I think about it, I'm just like, James Gunn. It's supposed to be the thing of a director has to have something relevant on their resume to get a job, right? A writer especially, there's nothing similar to Superman in any of James Gunn's history work. What the hell makes anybody think he can write this movie besides the fact that he decided he's going to do it? It's just, it's nuts. But I have pretty much written off the entire future, D just by the fact that they put Mangold or whatever the fuck that dude's name was from The Flash. They put him on The Brave and the Bold. It's, it's it. It's a done deal. It's It's shit. The two brief points that we have to kind of get out of that negative headspace. Tom Holland wants Miles Morales to be taking over as the new Spider-Man in the MCU, so that's 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 good to hear. Anything about that?
1: Um, I, I definitely see where he's coming from because I do kind of feel like MCU Spider-Man has kind of had a full story yeah. in a way. Yeah. Um and yeah, it it just be fun to to see him interact with that and then also just that whole. The Miles has never been done before. That's something new and fresh that I think the Spider-Man movies live action are definitely mm-hmm. needing. I mean, yeah. look, look at how much it revitalized the like Spider-Man movies as a whole, just in the animated stuff from bringing Miles and all the others in.
0: Yes. And then on the flip of topics, Harley Quinn's season four, the animated series, of course, is coming this summer. So that's exciting. We love the show. The show loves us. Keep them coming. Excited? He's giving a thumbs up. He's yawning. Not because of the show. <laughs> uh, there is a new trailer for Sailor Moon Cosmos that's coming this summer. Uh, you can check that out. I have it linked in the podcast notes. And that brings us to our final, well, our second to last uh, topic, because we're going to talk strange new worlds and secret invasion. But anime news, which is going to be a lot of lists of stuff that's starting and the dates that they're starting uh, we got, well, okay, after the first few things, Kuma 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 Bear, which is one of my favorite animes, is promoting a real-life bear park. You can see a link to that one in the podcast notes There is a BPO Watchdog group that published a complaint about a toxic subset of Oshinoko fandom, which is highly believable, knowing just how Twitter is these days. Again, linked in the podcast notes. Fathom Events is screaming Demon Slayer uh, live reading on July 18th. It's the Kimetsu Festival. It's going to have a stage reading event under the title Demon Slayer. Kimetsu no Yaiba on stage for one night only in U.S. theaters July 18th with English subtitles titles. Uh, Fathom Events describes the program. Kimetsu Festival is a special stage program celebrating Demon Slayer, the anime. The stage program is a live capture and features cast members who bring the series' world to life as they perform an exclusive live reading of an original story and special live dubbing performance. Uh, Then we're going to have a Sanrio Cinema cinema Roll show starting in October. It's going to be YouTube Shorts um, in Cinnamon Roll's origin story, a white dog flew down from the skies one day and was discovered by a female cafe cinnamon worker. The I Roll brand depicts an alternate world that poses a what-if question. What if Cinnamon Roll had not met the cafe cinnamon worker on that faithful day? The i in the title stands for both the English first-person pronoun i and the Japanese word i, A-I, love. And it represents the brand's, the brand's theme of taking care of one's own body and mind. That's coming in October. And then Demon Slayer is also making the Hashri Geiko arc. The uh let's see, what is it called? It's called the Hashri Training Arc, it's gonna get an anime. Um, and it ended, the the current season of Demon Slayer ended this past Sunday, a week ago. Anime News Network reports that Crunchyroll is going to be streaming 15 different Dragon Ball movies, starting and with a dump of like seven this past week. And then they'll do another set next week, and then a third set the final week. Um, and you can see that list of movies and the dates in the podcast link. And now for the shows that are premiering in the summer, just a couple of show titles and dates. The Devil is a Part Timer, July thirteenth. Am I Actually the Strongest, July July first. Yumi Miru Danshi wa Genchi Sushugisha, July third. I tried, okay. Rent-A-Girlfriend, Season 3, July 7th. Tenpuru, No One Can Live on Loneliness, July 8th. Saint Cecilia and Pastor Lawrence, July 12th. Undead Girl Murder Farce, July 5th. And Tonikawa, Over the Moon for You, Season 4, July... Well, actually, not Season 4, Season 3. Technically, it's going to be four new new episodes, July 12th. It's it's the Kawaii Girls High School arc, is what they're calling it. Konosuba, God's Blessing on this Wonderful World. Season 3 is coming in 2024. The Duke of Death and His Handmaid is coming July 9th, Season 2. My, ne- My Life is a Villainous, All Routes Lead to Doom. The Movie is coming December 8th. And then the Automata version 1.1a is filling, its putting up, wow, It's final episodes, July 23rd. Now that I've stumbled that out, That leaves us with Current TV. We're going to talk Strange New Worlds Episodes 1 and 2 and Secret Invasion Season 1 Episode 1. The first episode of Strange New Worlds Season 2 was called The Broken Circle. Um, This was very much an episode to catch people up to what's going on in the season and kind of warm them up to a new season of Star Trek stuff. Reminder of who the characters are, what they do, who does what, um... You know, the roles, the relationships, everything like that kind of bring you up to up to speed with strange new worlds. And that was that was great. I'm sure there's a lot of critics who are saying that it was a boring episode. I don't know. I guess you can just be dispassionate about whatever you want. That's fine. Uh, I choose to be passionate about things like this and I really enjoy this show so I will continue to enjoy it until it's not good uh, The Broken Circle was very much a good episode we actually had a guest star whose name escapes me but she is just brilliant in everything I've seen her and she was obviously in um, wow that one on Netflix uh, Kim something Kimmy the Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt that's the one uh, she was the, like, the crazy house or uh, landlady, I guess. <laughs> Whatever she was. um, She's a phenomenal actress, and I was really, really happy to see her in a role as not a crazy old woman. She is a role as a, an actual Starfleet captain. Um, and to everyone's surprise, of course, willing to go along with their hijinks as they... Well, it wasn't really hijinks, it was... I mean, it was kind of hijinks. They got hijinky a little bit <laughs> to go and rescue some of their shipmates off on another planet who were doing important things. So, um, and you also get an introduction to, for the first time necessarily in the show, I believe, um, to various species, you know, legendary species in Star Trek mythology. So uh, we'll kind of see how that goes for the rest of the season. But episode two took us in a different direction, as I think everybody was kind of hoping after the soft, warm, and very well-taken intro that was episode one. Episode two was Ad Astra Per Aspera. Um, I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds fucking cool. But in this episode, this is predictably Pike going to rescue Una. Now, he's obviously not going to steal her out of there. He has to rescue her by legal means. Of her winning her trial, and yes, it is super fun. <laughs> My favorite part of that is to sit with you and to make the jokes about how Pike is like this Rico Suave dude, but like not in a skeevy way. He's like legitimately like he makes carbonara for his for his bang buddy when she comes through town. Like he's legitimately just a Suave dude through and through. <laughs> um, but yeah, they're not they're not getting together again because she tried to uh, put Una in prison for life, for being an Illyrian. <laughs> Which, you know, she can say all this, of, oh, it's just my job. Your job didn't dictate that you... Cha- yes? Yes? You hear him? That's bath. You good? He talks. Um. Anyway, her job didn't dictate that she changed the... <laughs> She changed what they were accusing Una of from, like, a two-year sentence to a life sentence. That was her own choice. Uh, but they did get a a lawyer who was Illyrian in there, and we got a lot of the Illyrian backstory, which was really phenomenal. They did a great job explaining all of that. Whoever the actress was who plays her best friend or old friend and lawyer absolutely knocked it out of the park. She did great. She she murdered the the killer legal bitch, like... Through and through. Killer smart legal bitch. I loved it. And of course, what she does is she kind of riles them up to the point of them kind of walking into the trap of, yes, this is <laughs> this is where I have been leading you this whole time for these legal statements and questions, to the thing in, in the law that says anybody who is persecuted can go to Starfleet to be uh, safe, basically. And based on what Una had already explained of her time as an Illyrian on her own planet, she was persecuted. She went to Starfleet to escape that, and therefore, Legally is there. It was great. I loved it. love to see the legal system do the thing correctly. Thank you, Legally Blonde, for probably that is that in all of us. Unfortunately, I don't have a whole lot else to say about these two episodes, Um, I didn't take notes as I was watching them like I normally would for the podcast, because I was just having a lot of fun, to be frank. Um, Which is what I like to do with Star Trek, as it's really just been a lot of fun. Um, And Strange New Worlds has just blown my expectations away for future Star Trek projects. Good luck, folks. Finally, Secret Invasion. The first episode was titled Resurrection, obviously alluding to Nick Fury not being dead, I'm sure. Um, I will not lie, I fell asleep because we were watching it at like 1am, and it was a long, it was 55 minutes, okay? It was a long episode. Uh, if I recall, you can fill me in wherever I'm wrong here, basically, um, Amelia Clark, who is, was it Gia? Gia? Um, Gaia. She is, what's his name?
1: talus's daughter. Thank
0: you, Talus's daughter. Um, and she is basically running or like heading the sect of um scrolls on earth who are stealing people, humans, putting them in that machine, basically that you see in Captain Marvel, and then stealing their like memories to go out in public as humans and like everything be normal, and they can totally write it out because they know everything they're supposed to know to be this person at the same time. Right, they also have their own society that's like super secret where they can live in their own skin. Right, isn't that what they were?
1: Yeah, they had, they're living. Why in... were
0: there the two sides of it? Were they just trying to get into the government or something? No,
1: they're there's basically they're they're living in Chernobyl um, because right. scrolls can scrolls bodies can take the higher radiation output, which which I kind of like. That makes sense because it's like all right, if you want there to be a race of green people in Earth that would be the place it'd be because, like, no human can go there. Yeah. Um, and what it is is they have people who are designated as, quote, warriors, which are the people who will, just like you were saying, go out and wear the other people's right. faces. And then you have the other people who are just cho- choose to stay on land. They just want to be, they just want to have a They just reform- want to
0: live in their own skin.
1: Exactly, yeah. They just want to live over I their own that skin. I remember and, like, <laughs> and, yeah, and farm the lands like they used to back on their own On
0: Skrullos. They, yeah, they call this
1: New Skrullos. Yeah, it's called New Skrullos. Um and she's the right hand of I cannot remember the guy's name. Um, he's the name of the super scroll from the comics, but that's oh who, yeah, that's who he is.
0: Gunnar or whatever. Yeah,
1: Gnar. Yes. Uh, so he is. He's the super scroll. Gnar is the one who's leading it. I don't think he is yet. I think he's gonna do something with some sort of like gas or like mysterious thing to give him that power up. Okay. Um, um
0: and then Nick Fury.
1: Yeah, Nick Fury coming back was really cool. Um, they, they, they make it a point that like he's old, he's not what he used to be. Knurr. Knur, yes, that's okay. Knurk. Yes. I had to look it
0: up in my Marvel's um, podcast. Notes.
1: The the whole time that everybody's like, Fury, you're too old for this, you're not what he used to be. Um, crazy
0: old man seeing and stuff where Yeah, it crazy old man you know, and Fury's just
1: like, I wanna have one last hurrah and stop this and save everyone. Um and the whole time everybody's like, You're a little bit too old for this, um you might not be cut out for this anymore. Uh, You're only weighing us down. You're just going to end up getting somebody hurt. You know, the episode goes on. They end up finding out about this dirty bomb that he wants to set off somewhere in the middle of a civilian area. Um, so they go there and meet it, and then guess what? Uh, somebody ends up getting hurt because Fury wasn't quick enough because he's an old man. Uh, basically, what's that guy's name again? The super school? K'nur. K'nur. Uh, he wears Fury's face and shoots Colby Smulders, and she's presumed dead. Yeah, so I think that so yeah, so I think that's so, yeah, so kind of meant for Fury to really take a step back and go, I need to you know go all in on this. I can't just disappear for almost ten years and then come back and mm-hmm. expect me to be fine
0: and everything to be the same level I was at ten years Ex- ago.
1: Exactly. Um, and there's also a couple of uh, I think Talos and Smolders uh, and not Smolders uh, Hill said it to him as well. They both said, "You haven't been the same since you got snapped." So it's a little bit of him dealing with the PTSD of—I mean, he literally died and came back. I feel like that would mess with anybody. Uh, So it's kind of where we're left. I enjoyed it. I think it's—it's—it's going back to like Winter Soldier-esque vibes. I think Um, this is
0: their take on Andor's success.
1: Yeah, I just think they saw the success of Andor and were like, "Oh, people like this kind of like not people like gritty, you know, whodunit things that you're kind of figuring out cloak and dagger." Yeah, we do. We don't need to watch. Forty-five minute yeah. episode of CGI explosions. Yeah.
0: you can you can have people actually acting and actually like doing doing movie things. <laughs> yes, yeah. And,
1: and, it, and another thing, uh, it's Ben Mendelsohn that has done a great job. Um, I only knew him um from like doing like art house movies with like Sam Rockwell and stuff. So It's mm-hmm. kind of cool to see him do this after doing Star Wars and still bring because you need you need somebody you need people like that in yeah, the who like do art house movies who can come in here and actually just act and not you, just yeah. Readable. There, there
0: is a lot, like kind of a surprising amount of high class, like I guess you would say, British actors in this. You yes. have Martin, what's his name, who's playing obviously an American, um, uh, and then you have Ben Mendelssohn, the chick who is in the government who looks exactly like the prime minister you would expect a prime minister to look like, Amelia Clark. Amelia Clark, yeah, you get a lot of really like high end British actors in this. It's really interesting. I, that's definitely.
1: I think that was a choice. They wanted to, like.
0: Where does this take place? It's at Chernobyl, obviously, but, like, the the main, like, Fury stopping the bomb, where
1: was that? It seemed like they have. Fury has, We're like, a. To. Yeah, Fury has a hideout in Russia, basically. Uh, like, a little okay. like, uh, I was bunker thi-
0: thing. I was yeah. thinking maybe this was, like, their first step into oh British MCU stuff but mm-hmm. no if it's not really taking place in England then well well no
1: yeah they they are butting heads with the woman because she is head of mi6 oh that's what she, okay. um so so they, they're oh man I didn't even think we might like see like a reference to captain well that's what, that that's what I was getting fun, at is yeah. that
0: like what if this ends up being our lead into uh Captain Britain and um shing.
1: Psylocke? well the- Betsy
0: the Excalibur is what I was going oh. for. I was trying to remember the sword name. Excalibur, which is a mostly primarily British team, right? Yeah.
1: Um, yeah, just like, you know, even if it's something as I mean, I know it's whatever, I still in my head canon that castle that you see in Moon Knight is definitely dooms. Just a little fun thing. Like it could be even something simple, like you know a little like that of like, mm-hmm. Oh, we'll have to get our captain on this of the you yeah. know. That's all you could say. We, we
0: have our own captain.
1: Exactly, yeah. And then just leave it to that. You know, leave it to us. You we, you don't need to do the freaking James Gunn animal torture thing. You could just say it.
0: Reference mm-hmm. that he's a mutant or something. Well, he's yeah. not a mutant, is he? It's just a sister. Yeah. 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 And thus, all of Teeny Howard's Excalibur plot is birthed with just that concept. Mm. Uh, not shade, just a little bit of shade. Okay, is that it then? I think that covers everything we wanted to cover in this episode. Thank you for tuning in to whatever portions you tuned into. Please join the Discord. It is linked in every episode's description right at the top. Um, and talk about us, talk to us about like, you know, whatever you feel like talking about because that's what Discord is for. Uh, in the meantime, we'll all be back for the first episode of July, hopefully next week, but time will tell. Meanwhile, Enjoy comics and your manga and anime products, and don't be an asshole. Stay sweaty.